Hello, my name is David Vardabedian. Thanks so much for tuning in to Get Real Sobriety. Hope you enjoy this show. Hello, good afternoon. We're here in the Alano Club with Brian O'Day. Hi. Uh, on a rainy Sunday, Santa Barbara day, which is kind of, you know, out of the ordinary. What are we used to? 70 degrees all year round, but it's kind of cool. And sitting upstairs at the Alano Club, which has a lot of history for both of us. Um, and we're just going to have a conversation today. I want to tell you a little bit about Brian O'Day, um, who is a friend of mine. Brian was born in St. John's, Newfoundland. He first worked as a minor drug dealer in that providence. Moving up, he became an importer of hashish to Canada from the United Kingdom after being arrested on minor drug charges in Canada. He served a brief sentence before moving to Jamaica, where he coordinated marijuana, cocaine, hash, smuggling operations going from Colombia to the United States and Canada. Under increasing threat from the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency Administration, he quit the business in 86, but his life declined and he became addicted to drugs. After suffering an overdose in 1988, he quit drugs, becoming a drug and alcohol addiction counselor. Three years later, ha ha ha, however, the DEA finally had assembled a case against him and arrested him. He pled guilty and was sentenced to 10 years in federal penitentiary, being transferred to Spring Hill Penitentiary in Canada in 1992. And he wrote a book called High, Confessions of a Pot Smuggler, released April 11, 2006, published by Random House in July by Virgin Books in the UK and Australia, and in May of 2009 by other press in, in the U.S. markets. His book won a 2007 Author Ellis Awards for Best True Crime Book. It's a great book. I read it, um, you know, knowing Brian. Brian and I have known each other, of each other throughout the years. Our stories parallel a little bit. We're about the same age. And I was a, I would say a minor <laughs> drug dealer. And it became, it's just such an interesting story, but it's a great book. You can find the book anywhere on all online. Amazon. Amazon's a or great place. You know, some bookstores carry it still. Right. Surprisingly, in Santa Barbara, if you're in Santa Barbara, Chaucer's. Yeah. Oh, they have that there, yeah. Chaucer's has carried that book ever since it was published, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, bookstores are almost like a thing of the past, and I love... It's like going into a record store and looking yeah. at vinyl and just... You know, I've always taken my daughters like to experience this because at some point they're all going to be gone, I guess, you know, or there'll be museums or something. Right? I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, I love bookstores, uh, and I hope they're never always gone, but I, I fear as well. Um, however, there's something about holding a book as opposed to an electronic right. uh, instrument for reading uh, that I like. I like the tactile experience, but... You know, we're 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 gradually being pushed away from those tactile experiences into a digital right existence. I'm afraid. I mean, there's something comforting in going to a bookstore and just grabbing something, maybe sitting in the corner for a while, or grabbing it. 
What didn't we have either or bookstores here, uh, on State Street for a long time, and it had a cafe. It was kind of like the old school San Gosh. Francisco Earthling Books, Victoria Street, yeah, and State Street. I remember. Uh, I, oh man, I mean, I bought a book in there that literally changed my life an hour after I bought it. Oh, uh, what book was that? I'm sure you remember. That was a, I do, I remember, I, I remember it so clearly. It was, uh, it was in 1988 and I had been sober about six weeks. <laughs> and <clears throat> I, I went into the Earthling bookstore because they sold, I, I got an interest in Rumi and in spiritual books when right. I got sober in 88. And I went in there this day and I bought a book called 10,000 Proverbs in Quotations. And I drove back to my friend's place in Montecito and, and I was sitting at her kitchen table. And, you know, I, I had been struggling with my ex-wife back and forth. We were going back and forth, always fighting, disagreeing, slugging it out on the phone, you know, and no, you're wrong, you don't understand, no, you're wrong, you don't understand, that whole thing. And, you know, I, I, I was so deeply embedded in my need to be right. Um, so uh, just to preface this story, I will tell you that a couple of days earlier, I was visiting George Buffano, who's a psychiatrist, and telling George how wrong my ex-wife was and George said gosh Brian I I'm going to let you in on a little secret I'm right all the time but I try and keep it a secret (laughs) and I suggest you do the same and oh one other thing your wife she's right too and you know when you know she's so wrong She's right. Why? How is that possible? Because she has a life experience different from yours. And through her life experience, this is how she arrives at seeing things. So when you say to her, oh, no, no, you don't get it. You're wrong. I'm right. What you're saying is put your life experience aside. Know that mine is a more improved version, it's a more understanding version, and take mine on and see it my way. He said, that's impossible. So he said, here's the deal. And this is at six weeks over. This is six weeks over. He says, my suggestion is hold your rightness gently. Always be prepared to change with new information. And know that everyone is always right because they're using everything they have. So, you know, that... that that hit the front of my head. It didn't penetrate me. So here it is. A few days later, I'm coming back. I pick up this book. I'm back at the kitchen table. I phone Susie, and we get at it in the phone. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. Hang up the phone. Flip the book open that I bought at Earthling Bookstore. This is the grave of Mike O'Day, who died maintaining his right of way. His right was clear, his will was strong, but he's just as dead as if he'd been wrong. It, honestly, lightning hit the wow. fucking page. Wow. Boom. And it struck me in a way that it had never, hardly anything had ever struck me. Wow. 
and I was revealed to myself to be wrong. Right. Right. Wrong. <laughs> right. I know. So I was revealed to myself. Uh, it, it was revealed to me at that moment that this was my burden. This was my burden. What the heck? That I should be right for other people and look at me? Right. You know what I mean? I can't get it right for myself, but I always know what's right for you, and I'm such a good advisor, and I can give advice so well. And <laughs> So let me just finish that by saying that we had a meeting on Tuesday nights in those days uh, at Cottage Hospital that had ground rules that added to that need-to-be-right-dropping that helped all of that through the ground rules of that meeting that really shaped my life and the lives of every other person that went through those meetings at that that at college in those days anyway 1988 that was uh you know here i was i knew the cops were going to come sometime i did uh i had no doubt you know we pulled off. And how long, just to back up a little bit, how long, this was two years after you'd been sober? Yeah, two or, years right. I'd been sober. And, uh, you know, we pulled off bringing in 75 tons, and the DEA were on to us, and we pulled it off with them looking at us. Right. So well, Give the audience, you know, not to give your book away, because I want everyone to read this, but I, it was really entertaining for me, and because and, I know you, but I didn't know the whole story. And I was like, fucking hell, I mean, <laughs> this is pretty gnarly. I mean, yeah. so you started doing, that, like when we said uh, a minor drug dealer back in, in Canada, how old were you at that point? Well, I was, I, I went to, so I, I'm from Newfoundland, and uh, when I finished high school, I went to uh, Nova Scotia, to Halifax, to university. And uh, I, I grew up a Catholic, so I was in an all-male school growing up in high school and then an all-male university, St. Mary's University. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, when I went to St. Mary's, there were hippies up in Nova Scotia, people with long hair, and, and that looked odd. They looked like there were, something was going on. I was later to learn they were on acid quite frequently, <laughs> uh, but I had no idea what that was or anything, really. Right. And uh, but then marijuana and people smoking marijuana and and these hippies would you'd see them out smoking marijuana in the park and stuff and the cops would be rousting them and I thought gee whiz and one day one guy asked me if I wanted to smoke a joint and I said nah I don't think so had you ever smoked weed before no I never never. drink drink my dad owned a brewery we drank all the time drank 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 all the time drank. Growing up, drank when I was a kid, drank all the time. I wouldn't have considered myself an alcoholic because I didn't seem to have a problem with it. Everybody drank. But everybody drank, you know. Um, anyway, I, I, he, he said, no, try it. It's way better than drinking. So I said, well, okay. So we went up to my apartment, and there were four of us lived in this apartment in Halifax University. And uh, these two hippies came in, the four of us, and we went in the kitchen, sat on the kitchen floor, and they rolled a joint, and then we passed the joint around and smoked it. And they got noticeably different and kind of chuckling. And 
It was high, obviously. I didn't feel a thing. And I said, I don't feel a thing. You guys are crazy. So they rolled another one, passed it around, and I still didn't feel anything. And so I got up, and I stood up, and when I stood up, it just, bam, it hit me. And I fell right back down on the floor, and I at first got a little worried because and frightened because I couldn't stop it from coming on. But then it just came on, and all of a sudden I was laughing, and the next thing I was in the fridge, and basically that was it. You know? And that, you know... From that to no, 75 sober, tons... Yeah. <laughs> But in 22 years. Like, growing up in a, you know, with your family business, what, did anyone know, like, oh, that guy's an alcoholic? Or oh, did, yeah, I had right. an uncle who was an alcoholic. But was he pigeonholed or, or identified in your Absolutely. family? Absolutely. Oh, right. Totally. He was a town he was drunk, a drunk, right? No, he's a doctor. But, um, you know, he used to, he used to drink tremendously. I right. mean, he, he did things like go to Switzerland and do the sleep cure. And, you know, they used to put you asleep for a month over there, right? They put you in twilight for a month. Oh, my God, I've never heard of that. Yeah. And, this but the is problem in when? Is, when did they do it? Like the 60s? or the 60s. This right. was in the 60s. Wow. And I, they probably still do it. Um, but, the, see, the same person wakes up that went to sleep is the problem. Exactly. Okay? That's no matter, no matter what. You may not have had a drink for 30 days, but the exact same person wakes up. And needless to say, it was a very short time later that he was back in the bag again, right. and he died in the bag. Um, but and my dad drank every day. He, I mean, in his office in the brewery, he had, a, he had a cooler that he put two, four of beer in there every morning. It was empty every afternoon. Now he had people coming and going and have a beer with him in the day, but he drank all day. Uh, he never appeared drunk, however, Hmm. Uh, after work, he'd stop at the hotel and have some dark beer and some rum and come home. And so it's such a phenomenon because some people don't have the chemical imbalance, like, you know, that I have, that you have. And mm-hmm. I was somewhere and we were talking about that. And someone's like, they were worried about marijuana in California being legal and is that going to affect the sober living? And I was like, well, no, we're never going to allow people, because I'm on the board of this house, I'm like, we're not going to allow people to smoke weed in the house if they're in a sober living. It's, but it, the point is, I think what people miss is that it's not an attack on the institution of marijuana or alcohol. It's relationship. It's how, what our relationship is with that. You know, I have an allergy, or they call it, or some kind of imbalance, that when I drink, it, you know, it evolved into something not so good, but... So, and, you know, my dad was kind of the same way. He was a heavy drinker, and then my mom was an alcoholic who had to get sober. My dad just stopped. You know? Anything I have ever taken in my life for medicine, it's never changed from anything but being medicine. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Anything that I've taken in my mouth to play, I fucked up. But a doctor tells me to do something to take that drug, take this, and I had this operation, i got to take that in order to live afterwards uh, and in order to survive the pain. And any time I have taken anything for a medicine, when it was time to stop taking, it was very easy to stop taking it. I, on the other hand, it might say, alcohol may affect the, or may 
increase the effects. I'm like, well, thanks for the tip, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> thanks for putting that on the label. Oh, buddy. Take two of these and two cocktails and you'll be in, you know, you'll be right. in that groove, right? Yeah, right. Uh, Quaaludes and Mandrax. And- <laughs> yeah. So oh, it man. just, so you left there and, you know. So I left, yeah, yeah. You know, I went back to Newfoundland then and brought drugs back there. And in a minute, the cops were on to me and harassed. A small place, right? Very small. Right. You know, geographically huge, but half a million people. Right. And I came from a prominent family that was, you know, it was, we were presence in the community. So if I'm back doing a little pot smuggling, well, that makes, you know, that word gets out easy. So um, eventually, uh, you know, a friend of mine, I managed bands, and I had this band that had English guys in it from England, and they couldn't believe the price of hash and what have you in Canada. And one day one of them said to me, I could hook you up with one of my mates in England, and we could, uh, you could go over and get so much better deal, and the next thing you know, on a plane and next thing two days later i got my body strapped up with hash from head to toe on that plane coming back and that's kind of where the smuggling thing began was right there and i mean with you know because some people be like that's insane i would be so nervous or so afraid and you're like more the entrepreneur going no if i do this there's a lot of money involved in this and who's you know coming into customs in Newfoundland with my name flying in and I'm Brian O'Day and I'm John's son it was no problem you know I'll say hi to your father for me and you know that kind of thing wow so yeah it 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 was easy easy it was easy and um but interestingly enough that was the first smuggle I went to prison for that particular hash uh part of that load And uh, the last deal that I did in Southeast Asia, I ended up going to prison for as well. So it was bookends, right? Bookended with prison. Wow. Bookended. The first one was 19 months. The last one was 10 to 12 and a half years. So when after, so you did a little stint in prison in in Newfoundland, and then you left there, and so I when I you know I, I. I made the fatal or interesting decision to get married just before I went to prison in 1972 to my girlfriend. My father said that was the biggest mistake I ever made. Um, She left me while I was in prison, of course, and um, consequently they they rescinded my parole. I was going to get out on parole the day after she came down and left me. And then they decided they better not let me out on parole because it might not, you know, I might lose control and try and do something to her, which was bullshit. But anyway, they kept me in there for another seven months. So when uh, the the time came to and my sentence was over, a friend of mine picked me up at the uh, prison, drove to my house, dropped off my personal belongings, and I got in a plane to Columbia. That was it. Right. I never looked back. I I lived in Columbia and Jamaica for the next kind of, five years right and uh we had boats and planes and it's just so interesting because it was such a you know a level like i was selling you know i was selling the stuff that you guys were bringing in i might get a you know a kilo of hash or 
you know, in the early days, we would smuggle or not smuggle, but buy those different cellophane wrapped kilos of, you know, shitty marijuana from Mexico. (laughs) And then I remember the very first time my friend brought a lid, we used to call them back then, of it was Colombian buds. I mean, it didn't look like the stems and seeds that we were getting then. And we were like, you paid $15 because the lid was 10 bucks, right? Yeah. So we go, fuck, you got ripped off, right? <laughs> but then we smoked it, and that was the end of the shitty marijuana coming. And then it was like Colombian, like Red Bud and Punta Roja. Yeah. And then and it went Santa Marta Gold. Yeah, the gold. And then, and then all us. of a sudden, what happened in 75 was tie sticks. That's right. That was, was us like, too. what the fuck is this? You know? Mm-hmm. And hash oil. Yeah. It was like, wow. So. Yeah. You know, and I'm selling pounds and kilos on the street there that you guys are bringing to us, basically, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's, I always say cocaine ruined everything. Totally. <laughs> totally. You know, Coke was fun for a while. I had a great time with Coke for a number of years. Uh, although, you know, it, it, it always made me p- disappear. Yeah. I'd go on runs for three, four, five days and not come home. And, you know, that was never good. Uh, But when it came time to give up Coke, it wouldn't let go. That was it. Yeah, it's always calling. Uh, That's it. At uh, 1984, my wife said, hey, get out. But before that, you know, just going back through the book, is like you did pretty well not getting involved with that until the 80s basically right i did it all the time but it wasn't a problem it was fun yeah it was it 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 was like listen coke for a number of years everybody who did it was having a great time and then it was like in a in an instant the vibration of that product or something happened but it changed Mm -hmm. and it turned on every single person who was doing it It went from out in the clubs dancing to in a closet. Yeah, waiting somewhere. for the cops to get there. But right. believing they're there. Yeah, exactly. Right, there are 10 in the parking lot. Right. I only see eight. That kind of stuff. And, you know, I always had this, you know, I mean, I have this theory now is that because I would see guys get paranoid. I'm like, what the fuck's wrong? What's wrong with these guys? You know, my friend would be up peeking out the window, looking at everybody in the bushes. And I come up and I'm like, you know, a hot summer day. Like, hey, what's going on? He's like, Shh, stop. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, there's someone down there. And I'm like, where? Like, all, you know, now yeah. I'm alarmed, but I'm not paranoid, right? So I go down, I look in the bushes and I yell up, hey, there's no, and he just hits the floor, right? And so... But then I remember it going, something in my brain, it switched. And then from that point on, it was every time you did a line or did, a, you know, uh, smoked it or injected it, you went straight to fucking paranoia. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like the most Absolutely. evil drug in the world. You know? It's so bad. God. You know, I went 20 years with it in my pocket I uh, the last uh, time I bought coke, I bought a kilo for myself. Um, and for twenty years, it was it was it was m- m- my dog, my yeah. running mate. Uh, in the last thirty-one years, I have seen it twice. Wow, hard to believe. Yeah, that I could live all of that life <laughs> so 
tuned around that right. fucking powder to not seeing it only twice. Once when these lawyers, I was at a meeting with these lawyers, and they broke it out and started chopping it up on my hotel room table. And I said, is that cocaine? They said, <laughs> yeah, come on. And they went, get the fuck out of here. Right. And I screwed it, slapped it off the table, spread it on the floor, and uh, they left the room. And then another time, oh, six months after I got sober, I, I you went, told me this story. This went back and grabbed it from the guy I left my coke with. But didn't you? you you're gonna. I'm gonna like hide this here just in case, right? When I left the coke with him, yeah. <laughs> well, I left the coke with him because that was it. I I had a heart attack and I was yanked out of there. So the coke was there, and then I just told him to keep it after that. Oh, right. And, uh, but six months after I got sober, I went down there and put some in my pocket to go use and fortunately busted myself and didn't use. Yeah. And that's, you know, so that's it. That time and the lawyer's time, and that's all I've ever seen. But, you know, what, what amazes me is that, you know, when you guys were doing those, like, you know, when you knew the DEA was watching you, I mean, you guys weren't all on coke, like paranoid at that point. I mean, you had to be focused no. and doing business. That's what I mean. So the last deal we did, right? We had a deal. Nobody did coke. If you did coke, you're out. Oh, okay. Period. Right. So we everybody put it down. All but how us, do you stop doing coke if you're into coke? All of us did coke. Right. right. All of us in the, in the ma- all of us, the management, the right. workers. There were 110 of us in our crew. Every single one of us did coke. Okay. <laughs> But I'll tell you what, 110 in the crew, 109 of us didn't do it. One guy did, oh. and we got rid of him. And that's the guy that went to the cops and, and ratted us out. Of course. And, uh, but fortunately, we found out before the, the DEA made their move on us. Uh, to, but everyone you know, was focused pretty, you know. Totally. 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 And no one was interested in coke. Right. We just, everybody just... Because everyone stood way. to make a lot of money. This is worth a quarter of a billion dollars. Right. It's $250 million worth of pot. Household full of cash. Right? Yeah, there was a house full of cash. There was, a house, there was a house up in Beverly Hills that as you walked up the driveway, you could hear this whirring. And you wonder, what the fuck is that? When you walked into the house, you knew immediately what it was. It was the sound of Count. money counting machines. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, and it's so, you know, like you're saying, you've seen it. To me, it's like when people go, oh, we were out doing coke. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that stuff. I was like, do they even have that on the planet still? And I mean, when, you, when you're so removed from it, you know, I mean, I was a junkie. I was into the opiates and all that. And so I'm pretty aware I can spot that across the room. And it's just like Coke got so awful at, at a point. I was just like, oh, my God, why would anyone still do that? You know, and um, so so we're at that, you know, the, that whole thing went down. You guys were successful. And then you hit that bottom with your heart attack and did that. So I bought after the deal was over, I I just figured, fuck it, I I, I can't be going back and forth to the fucking coke dealer because right. it, it was never opportune for the coke dealer. Yeah. Having been a coke dealer in my life, every time you call him, it's not the right time. You yeah. know, give me, I'll call you back. Right. It's always later something, and so I didn't want to deal with that. I figured, fuck it, I'm just going to go get a key, 
put it in the house and right. I'll just do it. But, you know, I, I've always done coke until it was gone. <laughs> and eight days later, I had a heart attack from an overdose, and I was pronounced dead in a guest house belonging to a friend of mine. Yeah, that's a lot of coke to go through. <laughs> it is. That was the eve of my 40th birthday. Wow. So my 40th birthday was my first sober day, and... And it's been 31 years. And then you went to Pinecrest, right? I went to Pinecrest. How did you find that? How was that Third on the Cottage radar? Hospital. So I went to Cottage in 84 when I tried to get sober in 84. Uh, uh, my wife told me to get out or get sober, one of the two. So I said, okay, I'll get sober. Find a place for me to go. So she started looking around. She said, I got a place. I found a place in Santa Barbara. And we lived in L.A., mm. in Chatsworth. So I thought, Santa Barbara? She said, yeah, you got to get out of here. So I said, okay. So we went up, drove up here. She phoned, spoke to them at Pinecrest, and we drove up and pulled into Pinecrest in front. Right. And when we pulled in front, I was better. I was better. I hadn't done any coke in three days. I felt good. What the fuck? And we don't need this. I didn't need to go in there. I'm feeling fine right now. I feel good. I don't need any Coke. Do I look like I want Coke? Are you fucking kidding me? I feel fine. I don't need to go in. She said, well, I'm f- going in. I told him I, you were coming. I'm going in there. You're coming in. I said, no, 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 no. I don't need, really, we don't need to do this. And she said, I'm going in. She got up and she went in. So I'm sitting in front of there wondering, what the fuck am I going to do now? And an ad came on the radio. It was the radio that was on. And the ad was, are you struggling with cocaine today? Is your life spinning out of control? Pinecrest Hospital is a place that you should consider. I'm parked in front of Pinecrest Hospital. This ad comes on the radio, and I go, fuck. I I had to go in there. (laughs) So, so you I did God shot universe. Oh right? man, right. I I was just so angrily grabbed my bag out of the back of the car, That's but I hilarious. couldn't ignore the sign, and I went in. And it's like these Betty Ford thirty days spent. We used thirty to call days them, right? later, buddy. Um, the Raider Institute. I went in there to quit cocaine. That's why I went in there. I did not go in there to quit pot. Right. I did not go in there to quit drinking. I did not have a drinking problem, but I went in there to quit Coke. So I pulled out of there after 30 days on my motorcycle with a huge resentment about a guy in there who was ripping me off for a car of mine, not paying me, that I had sold him. And I pulled out of the back of the hospital on my motorcycle and bam, got hit by a truck. And I got hit by a truck and knocked out in the crosswalk to Cottage Hospital on the back. Oh, you of didn't even get Pinecrest. like a hundred. I got. It was the crosswalk to emergency at that time. Wow! So they immediately came out and rushed me in, and you know I'm all got shredded on my body, and I come to, and I have no recollection of being in the hospital for thirty days, on um, in recovery across the street. They sent. Dr. Buffano over and Peter McGoey and all the people from the hospital, and I don't know any of these people. 
So they say, look, that's a medical hospital as well as this, so why don't you go back over there and recover from your wounds there and go through the program again. (laughs) So that's what I did. Another God shot, right? So 60 days in this hospital, and I go home. I walk in the house, open the fridge. I mean, your memory came back and all of that, to knowing no, Peter no, McGoey and all the... I, no. Oh, wow. That month was gone. Okay. I couldn't bring it back. But I did the program again. Went home, walked in the house, opened the fridge, cracked a beer, rolled a joint. Ah, ah, I think this is going to be all right. And six months later, I was back in the bag again. So it was two years later when the deal came up that I put the bag down to do the deal. And so for the next kind of two years, we oh, did that for big the, deal. The big, uh, the big right. 75 tons. And uh, when that was over, that's when I bought the, the big bag and, and blew it out. And then you went back to Cottage Hospital at that point. I went back yeah. to Cottage, and then I just stayed here. Right. You know, my wife left me and the kids, and so I just stayed here in Santa Barbara and went to work at Cottage. And, and uh, yeah, because you were helping, you were you were uh, you know kind of a layman drug counselor at that. I point. was right, yeah, because that's what you wanted to do. You went to them and said. Can I come back? How did that work? I mean, you know, it probably wouldn't work today. They want licenses and all that stuff. Right? Yeah, no, I, I, I was head of volunteers oh, okay. at the hospital, and I facilitated a group. That's what I did. But, you know, I had the greatest time there. It was just amazing. That year, that my 40th year, even though I knew the police were going to show up at some point, there was no doubt in my mind. You don't throw that much egg on the face of the DEA and and what? They're going to look away. They're going to figure a way to fucking hammer you, which they did. But that year was the greatest year of my life as far as... The first year of sobriety. First year of sobriety. My 40th with, you know, we had Bobby Calandra and me and... Were you coming here? Doug Miller and coming here. You know, look, this was the first building. This is the first... I, I, I... I hated dancing my whole life, okay? I'm not a dancer. I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not a dancer or a singer. Um, and least of all, I couldn't imagine ever dancing fucking sober. Right? Are you fucking kidding me? But Friday night in this Alano Club, when I got sober first time in 84, I'm down there dancing like a maniac right. and having the time of my life. I love that. Having the time of my life. And, you know, when I fell back out, I couldn't dance again. And I got sober again in 88. And the next thing you know, I'm down there dancing again on Friday nights in the Alana Club. Yeah, it was tough going to those dances for me. You know, because I was out of prison. You know, you know I, I wore my hair straight back, had a big 70s mustache. And, you know, and I was like, well, I want to get a date or something. You know, right? <laughs> And girls would ask me, so what do you, like, what kind of work do you do? And yeah. I'm like, I'm a, I would just say I'm a fireman. I mean, like, what the fuck, where does that, you know, I was in fire camp for a while, so I'm a fireman, you know, I mean. And so then you kept going. I mean, you're obviously now sober, working a program, going to meetings, and that first year, the second year, 
you're here living in Santa Barbara. You didn't move back to Chatsworth or anything, right? Uh, I stayed in Santa Barbara, um, you know, and, until the cops showed up one day. And Do you remember know. what day that was specifically, or like a day, what part of the year, what was that? Um, yeah, I remember it was in the spring of 1990. And um, these guys showed up and they didn't indict me. That they didn't come with an arrest warrant. There wasn't sealed indictment at that time, I'm sure, but they just came to shake me up and to get me on side. And you see, I was working at the hospital, and they figured, you know what? This we get O'Day. He he was one of the tops in the league in the game, and uh, we get him to come. Uh, this will be all we need. And. Um, because I was sober, they figured there's no way that he's not going to cooperate with us. Right. They didn't understand sobriety. Right. Because I was sober, I could not cooperate with right. them. You know what I mean? Well, and this all stems from the Coke, the, what, 110, 109, the one guy that he kind of turned on everybody. That's how this is all going. That's right. right. That's right. So, and you know, what happened was... We brought in part of the load, so so we were bringing in. We were we were working on the deal, and and this guy couldn't stop doing coke, so we got rid of him. He found out we got part of the load in. He came looking for money. We gave him a little bit of money. He didn't like the little bit of money, so he went to the DEA. For the next nine months, they watched everything we did. I saw some of the movies and the and the shots of the photos, and I was shocked right. at how much they had, wow. and they had everything. But, you know, fortunately, uh, the day before we were going to bring the load down from Alaska, we found out they were watching us. Yeah, I remember that part of the book. Mm -hmm. And so we hired a former DEA agent to go get information on what they knew about us. And a couple of days later, he came back, and basically he gave us the, It came to this. We knew that they knew, but they didn't know that we knew they knew. That was all we needed. Yeah. So we orchestrated something for them to look at, which they couldn't get their eyes off of. And while they were looking at that, we brought the load in. Amazing. And when we orchestrated for them to hit our boats, donuts had just come out of the oven. Wow. And the smell of donuts and coffee in the air, and they knew that they were had. They were flipped out. So that day in 88, or 90, I'm sorry, in Santa Barbara, they knock on the door. You're Say, in, hey, you're are you your... Brian O'Day? And I said, oh, I wish I wasn't, but I am. <laughs> you knew. You I knew. knew. Okay. I knew. The moment I was in bed, and a knock on my window on the door, I, without rolling over and looking, I knew who was at the door. And when I rolled over and looked, I could see a gun in somebody's hands behind the door. And I knew this is the cops because I don't have any enemies with guns right. other than the cops in those days. And, and this uh, is two years sober. Too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, two years sober. And as the cop, one of the good, the good cop, bad cop me, right? Yeah. They had eight guys tearing up the house and two guys had me on the couch. One guy was a good guy. The other guy was a tough guy. And the tough guy said to me, we know what you do, O'Day, work with drunks and dopes. 
This ain't about change or rehabilitation. This is about crushing your life, motherfucker. Now do the right thing. And I said, the right thing? I like to call my lawyer. Yeah. They said, well, we wouldn't call your lawyer because he's fucking next. And sure enough, they went and fucking hit my lawyer. Wow. <laughs> so they indicted 55 of us. And, uh, and you yeah. got 10 years. I got 10 years. And then Terminal Island and then going Terminal back Island to Canada. Terminal Island in L.A., Long, Long, Long Beach. Terminal Island, what a spot. So what do you do as a human being? It's, you know, it was kind of like I didn't, when I came out of prison, I wasn't a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, you know. Okay, I need a job. So after, so what do you do? I mean, you have a lot of so, skills. <laughs> when I, I, I was out of prison back in Canada, and my wife moved up from here, and one day... You know, I had money, little money, and I was losing money and in the stock market and, you know, trying to do deals and stuff, you know, not not drug deals, but business deals and trying to make little things happen and make some money. And she said to me one day, you got to get a job. And I said, what? Get a job? Who's going to hire me? I can't do anything. Never had a job. She said, oh, you can't do anything. Let's see. You had 110 people working with you in secret around the world and did a quarter of a billion dollar deal with boats and planes and trains and, and you don't know how to do anything, really. Imagine that. Sit down and write a resume. And what? write what you attributes that you think you can translate from that world to this world. So I said, okay... So I sat down and I wrote what ultimately became an ad that I placed in Canada's national financial newspaper. Yeah, and for the young listeners, we didn't have, you know, everything's digital now. I mean, you right. go on Craigslist. I mean, we had classified ads in the, in back, newspapers. Of, in the back of the newspapers. And this right. was, you know, this was even, <coughs> even though this was 2001, uh, it's not so long ago, Email wasn't even that big a deal. You know, people, mail was still happening. Mm-hmm. You ask people to yeah. write you a letter. <laughs> and um, so I wrote this ad in the paper, and it went, it, it was kind of, it, the headline was Former Marijuana Smuggler, having recently uh, completed a 10 year sentence for importing 75 tons of marijuana into the United States. I now uh, seek a legal means to support my family and myself. Uh, I'm an expert in security. I'm an expert in in, in uh, electronics. I speak three languages, and, and I let out attributes that I had. And then I laid out recommendations, people who would recommend me for the job. And even though I was one of 50, out of 55 guys, two guys didn't cooperate with the cops. I didn't, and neither did my chief engineer. Even though I didn't cooperate, the district attorney recommended me for any job. He, I put his name down there anyway, because he he as a reference. As a reference, awesome. And um, you know, I got I put it that ad in the paper, and that ad went around the world. Uh, George Lois, who the Mad Men, Mad, the Mad Men, uh, you know, oh, the, from the, the TV series, show. Mad, yeah, 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 that. Mm-hmm. Madman, the, the lead guy in that is based on this guy, George Lois. Okay. Who's, uh, so he wrote me and he said, your ad 
was the number one ad in the classified world ever. Imagine coming yeah. from a guy like that, right? right? So, uh, and he said, you wrote the best ad, classified. I also wrote the best ad, by the way. And I have his, that letter somewhere. I, I have to take that That's out. That's so crazy. Anyway, uh, that ad, I got 600 plus responses from all over the world. Uh, I could tell, you know, that, so the ad said you have to reply by mail to this newspaper, a post office box at the newspaper. And every day they phone me from the newspaper saying, Brian, would you please come and pick up your mail? And it just kept pouring in. And I could tell how the ad was moving around the world by the postmarks. Right. Like one day it would be all from China. The next day it would be Australia. And a couple of days later it would be France. And you could just tell where it was moving around the world because people would show it to people. Anyway, every cop... So how do you sift through all that and then find the right job to take? I didn't find a job. Oh, you did? No, I didn't. I just wanted to shake my life up. Right. And it did. But But there wasn't anything like promising, here's a six-figure career. Nothing really. You know, uh, I got every cop uh, agency in the country offered me a job, you know, to come work for them. I could have parlayed it into some type of consultation thing like that if I'd wanted to, but I didn't. I, I, I just did it just to see what would happen, see what would come up. Um, so I wait, sidebar is that at this point you, you wrote all the information that's in High, his book. The book Brian. was, re- was uh, in, in 2,000 in plus pages. pages. Right, I mean, okay. you telling me that. So I wasn't ready for what happened. Right. My life exploded when that ad hit. Mm-hmm. My, someone published my phone number in, in a, on a blog, in a, on a comedy network uh, online. And my phone rang for a month. Well, it never stopped. And I was on, a, you know, hundreds of radio shows, a bunch of TV shows. Um, and I wasn't ready. Had I had the book ready, would have sold a million copies right away. Um, when the book finally came out, it followed a million little pieces. That guy yes. that fabricated his right, story. Right. The, on so Oprah, it, you know, and then they found out it was all bullshit right. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, I kind of fucked up in two ways there but at the same time uh, you know that that ad i i was a guest on a late night talk show on television and there was an actor on that show who i'd met uh, in that uh, on the show the next day i bumped into that actor in my neighborhood starbucks in toronto so what the fuck is the chances of this right. i mean i've been coming to this starbucks every day since it opened right. And he said, me too. And I said, no way. Never seen you before until last night on the show. So we got to talking and he said, hey, I got a friend coming through from L.A. We're working on some projects together. We're trying to get a, uh, we got a show that we're trying to pitch for a television network. Do you know anyone at any of the networks? And it was just so interesting that I happen to know somebody through somebody who was actually a very big shot at one of the networks. In Toronto. In Toronto. Right. So uh, I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, they do. And he said, well, I got a, we got a reel that we shot on this show. Um, would you mind seeing if you could get us, pitch it, get us to get it pitched up there? So I said, okay. So I called my friend, Tekka. I said, hey, I got a, um, a pilot that, these guys shot and they're trying to pitch it and she said okay 
send it up and I'll see what I can do. 31 years. Your sobriety date is? September 1st, 1988. Wow. So I'm July 8th, 1989. I was, and my parole date was July 11th, 1990. So we're right there parallel, I, you know, and then ended up, you know, doing my new house thing. And everyone would come down from Pinecrest, you know, with their, all their, you know, hospital gear. That's right. Right? And they'd walk down the alley and Newhouse was there. So what an interesting deal now. And, and mm-hmm. where are you today? I mean, you know, not business-wise, like in sobriety. How, how is that, like, you know? Uh, my sobriety is great today. You know, I got, uh, I've got a son who's got six years sobriety. I've got another son who's got 23 years sobriety. That's because he was born 23 years ago. <laughs> Love him. And, um, you know, as he says, look, I'm just, a, it's a given. My grandfather, my, my granduncles, my this, my that, are all alcoholics, my father. So I, I'm going to take it as a given that I am that too. So I don't need to have a drink. He's never had a drink or a cigarette or a joint or anything in his life. And he's a wonderful... He's, he's a good kid. Just like and um, goes to meetings. Yep. Loves meetings. Loves going to AA meetings. Yeah. So bizarre. Um, and he and, supports other, you know, like our other friend that you sent me, you know, and, and, he's and that's a, what it's all about. He's man. one of us. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to... If you have a desire not to drink today, you're one of us. Well, he has a desire not to have a drink today. Yeah. And uh, just because he doesn't have trouble with it doesn't mean that he's not one of us. Um, he is a kind and gentle guy. My other son has six years. Uh, he was a vicious heroin addict who couldn't help but steal everything he got in front of. Um, he was on his way to prison, and he got in front of a good judge who sentenced him to rehab. He was on his way to L.A. County for three years. Hmm. And he got out six months later. He slipped. Heroin again. A day later, he came back. A day later. And now he's got seven years coming up on seven so years. I know I all, you know, I call them kids, all my guys. They went down. He was speaking somewhere in the valley. And they all got a, in the car. Your kid? No, you know, all of our, oh, what I call our all, kids, right? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I love the way the network, you know, how it works. It's because, oh, like, you'll call me and say, hey, can you talk to this guy? And I'm like, okay. And it's like, and I'll call you and say, hey, can we do this? And, like, we're, we're I don't know any other deal, you know, 12-step deal where we're so interconnected no matter where we are. And, we, you know, like, even... You know, talk, you know, I want to talk about my book, and we'll do a whole other podcast on that, but I didn't know what I was doing because I'm not a writer. I was writing something that I had an idea about, and it's done, and it took three years, and now it's being published through a friend of yours. Yeah. And that's how we work. It's just yeah. like this give and take, and or, hey, I have a friend. I'm not here. I have a friend that needs to, you know, get some help sober, mm-hmm. and that's what we do, mm-hmm. you know? And... You see, and when, and when I got to know you, I knew, you know, when a certain person calls me, I know exactly who they should talk to, right. you know? And two people that you've spoken to who I've 
asked you to talk to when I'm not in town. And both of them, you've had a fucking massive impact in their life. And they're doing well. And they're doing great. <laughs> right. And they're doing great. Right. And I noticed the difference in both of them, though I never would have known both, either of them. Honestly, I never would have known either of those guys were alcoholics. Exactly. Not the alcoholics of our type. Not my type of alcoholic. You had no question. Listen, when Brian didn't show up for the eighth day in a row, you knew there was something up with Brian. Right? But these kids, I look at them, and I I would never have known they even had a drink. Well, it just, I love, you know, a lot, not a lot of my, you know, right now I'm sponsoring five guys. I'm taking through the steps, and... I think three of them haven't been alive as long as we've been sober. <laughs> That's kind of a sobering fact, right? It but it's so awesome. It's like I spoke up in Santa Maria last night, and you know I still play music and I play in these classic rock bands. And uh, there was a guy. So there was a guy that came to this open mic. We kind of host this open mic up in San Diego. And he was kind of, you know, three sheets into the wind, you know, or whatever they say. I don't even know what the, what the saying is. But he had been drinking a little bit. And he came up and he says, hey, man, can I, can I sing, you know, uh, Darling, Darling You. you. Yeah, Darling You. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we know the chord. So long story longer is that I get up to the podium last night in Santa Maria and I look in the back row and the guy's sitting in the meeting. I'm like... He was drunk Thursday night, but he knows where to go. It's, it's just, you know, the gifts, the gifts that the universe, God, whoever you want to say, brings to us. Oh, buddy, I went to prison frightened to fucking death. Yeah. I made the fatal mistake of watching American Me before I went. <laughs> and, you know, I got there and that's all I could see was American Me before me. I was in a fucking panic, but I knew one thing. Monday night... People were coming in from outside with an AA meeting, and I was going to be there. And on Monday night, I was fucking there. And on Monday night, one of those people brought a message to me from someone on the outside. And I love that. I, you know, and I always, you know, give props to H and I because that's, you know, my I was doing a three-year sentence for robbery, and my last year I got sober in prison, and that's because of H and I. Yeah. You know, and the same thing with you. These people on these panels, which I've done since, I'm having problems getting back into prison, but I've, you know, they, people say, well, you know, I've never been to prison. I don't know if I should go on this. We appreciate anything that you do. And and you don't need to experience something. You're carrying a message of a way of life, of love and compassion and forgiveness. Go to prison. If you can get in a prison, get in there. Right. Number one, they need you in there. And number two, you're going to fucking love it. Yeah. To go into prison as a visitor, that's an amazing experience. I have done it. I've spent a night in prison as a a guest. Uh, I've I've been to downstate in New York, uh, maximum security prison, on a debating team four times. (laughs) And it was just unbelievable this is post-prison yeah and I'm, I'm telling you anybody out there if you're listening to me find a way to get yourself into prison as a visitor it's just the most tremendously uplifting experience because people are there and they're searching 
And again, I mean, statistically now, I mean, 80% of anyone that's in prison is drug and alcohol related. So get your ass in there. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thanks, man. God, this has been great. Awesome. I love you. Thank you so much for coming. I love you too, man. Thank you. This has been great. And uh, onward and upward, right? Roger, let's do it again. Yeah. And uh, what do we say? Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. 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 Kwanzaa and uh, is it Kwanzaa? Kwanzaa. Yeah, I think I said ha- what was Kwanzaa. This, what was the one on Seinfeld? <laughs> Festivus. <laughs> Festivus. I said Kwanzaa because I combined Kwanzaa-ka. Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. Yes. I love you. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. I'd like to thank all the people that are involved in making this happen. Gerald Jones for producing and engineering this podcast. He's absolutely brilliant. Follow him on Instagram. At Sonia, HTML. His music is amazing. Maya Grace for her hair and makeup. I know what you're saying. This is a podcast. Why do you have hair and makeup? We just want to look awesome for each other. See you next time.